0: you mm-hmm. sure this is Lizzie from the Westerverse. These are my campaign diaries for the Guardians of Fahal. Uh, today we're gonna be talking about episode 18, which is called Flights of Fancy. Um, Let's, let's do, I guess, a little uh, life update right now. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, I'm really behind on these. I was so far ahead and then I took a massive break, and I'm trying to catch up again. So this one probably will be airing towards the end of December. So, uh, yeah, hopefully it's an extra good one. That's probably going to be long, because I have to go into very long stuff. And there will be some content warnings specifically for what's talked about. Um, And I will put timestamps around that. So if you guys want to avoid that, you can, can. I completely understand. No judgment. Yeah, I obviously... Um, For a life update, I'm currently recording now for the first time in the in-transition podcast recording room. I have some of the soundproofing stuff up, and I ran out of uh, adhesive tape to hang up the sound panels. So I'm going to have to go get that, uh, get more of that, which kind of sucks. I wish I could have finished it this whole weekend. But you know what? It's more time to record, I guess, which I desperately needed to do and edit stuff. So... I look at life thwarting me but making me be productive. Um, yeah. Okay. So wow, both both this episode and the one I did for 16 um are both more serious. This one is going to have a lot of explanations, but it's it's I don't want it to feel like I'm defensively justifying a choice I made about an NPC's storyline. Like, like, I did something wrong. Um, it's more of I want to create context and thoughts as to why I, I included this as a storyline. So I'll kind of go into my thoughts on that a little bit later. But this this episode also has a lot of little fun, not tragic, but also very dramatic reveals that I feel like were super obvious and people, like, it's almost so cliche that I'm surprised nobody guessed it earlier, like, at the table. But but they didn't, so, you know, it is it is what it is. So, yeah, um, starting off this episode, uh, in case you haven't listened to it for a while, they had split up where Una, Nora, and Rowan are going to go talk to uh, Riannon because she specifically told Rowan and... Hans and Franz, Andrew's character, that um, she wanted to talk to Una about something. So uh, Una's checking in with her. They're currently uh, in way on their way to go meet Hughes later in the day to search the aqueducts um, and hopefully find more clues to the person Una's looking for. So, yep, that's why they're going to the school. Um, unlike last time, because they're visiting more in the morning, Rhiannon is busy in the morning a bit, so they're, they're waiting around for a little bit in her uh, room. And, uh, there's, uh, also the awesome campus guard who wants to give him a tour. Um, I, I really liked the idea of there being different personalities to the guards where, you know, they're, they're the ones that are like, yep, we're guarding things. This is very serious. But then there are also the ones that are more of like the campus security, like the campus guides of like, oh, welcome to so, welcome to this college. Welcome to Minnesota state. I would love to show you around. Uh, here is this, the, the, the dining hall, and, and, you know, here's the bookshop where you can get your own custom hoodie of uh, the school's logo on it, and our bookshop where we sell overpriced textbooks, and you can sell them back for a fraction of the price. Wouldn't you like to know more? Anyway, I, I, as they're waiting for Rhiannon, I kind of planted some stuff in her room, a little bit more details. Uh, there's tapestries on the wall, but they didn't really ask what they were of. Um, and I feel like they could have potentially been more hints. And I, I had written them up. Uh, basically, Rihanna has a lot of tapestries of um, horses on her walls and, like, running across floral fields. And probably one of them would have reminded the boys of the one that was created um, for the the tournament. Um, it, one of them would have reminded them of the one that was created at the weaving contest for the festival to the goddess of knowledge um, is one similar to that. Um, And then she also has ones of, um, it looks like birds on it, like some sort of like a falcon or eagle symbols and stuff like that. And there might've been, you know, reasons for that. And they could have had a history check about it, but you know, they didn't, they didn't ask about it. So we'll just let that be for now. Um, But yeah, then we, um, Get to talk about how uh, I get to go into long details about clothing. I really like clothes. I, I really do. I I have a bit of an interest. Like, I am not an expert in any means, in any way of historical fashion. I'm more of, like, a, a novice. I'm, I'm very interested in it, though. Um, and I love... I love... Uh, I love Clothing, and I also like how cultural differences can be represented in clothing, uh, v- such as different styles of modesty, what the nobles wear versus what the average uh, worker person wears, and, and what it says about somebody. Um, and a lot of times, historically, like clothing could kind of symbol like factions. Like, um, there's a little bit of mixed history on whether herald dresses Existed so like heraldry is basically when a noble house would have like their family crest or whatever, and it would have like you know a, an eagle and like a unicorn on it, and it's like oh this is house so and so, or this is the so and so. It's got three pairs on their a shield or something. Um, so like there's there's mixed sim- there's mixed historical evidence of whether people actually wore um, they would wear stuff with their heraldry on it. It was usually like a ring or something, but. Um, Or It could be on, like, their their shield. Um, But, like, for women, there's this idea that women wore, like, dresses that were only in their noble house colors or uh, with their, like, their herald sign on it. And because there's pictures that looks like, I, I believe that they found that look like there's pictures where somebody is, like, a girl from this house is wearing a dress that has their house iconography on it but a lot of people and historians are divided whether women actually wore those um or if it was just for like historic paint like not for historic but for paintings like court paintings um because mostly like noble people would have a ton of different outfits that was a sign that you were wealthy that you could afford several different dresses of different colors so the fact that you would limit yourself to just whatever your house colors is, is silly you don't get to show off your wealth as much that way um um, and one one thing that is kind of fun about this that I've seen done really well in certain shows, uh, specifically I'm gonna call out the the fashion designer um, or the, the costume designer of Game of Thrones here. I don't remember what their name is, but they specifically created a lot of pieces that kind of like told a story through it. Like for instance, um, Sansa's wedding dress. Um, We're going to talk about specifically one character's clothing for a minute here, because this is the one I've studied probably the most on. Um, So there might be some spoilers for Game of Thrones if you're not caught up, but the series has been out for a while. So we're going to talk about specifically Sansa's clothing, because this is one of the most unified themes of it. Um, Sansa's clothing in the beginning of the show actually resembles her mother's a lot, which kind of makes sense, because at the beginning of the show, her main influence of like what femininity and being a woman in this world is, is her mother's clothing so it kind of has more of these northern styles it's not super fancy the big difference is instead of really wearing furs like the neckline of her dresses normally has like some sort of like flowers on it and she wears like a lot of soft colors um when season two comes around and she's actively being held prisoner in king's landing not only does her hairstyle change um it also, her clothing does, where she starts dressing more like what would be considered a southern wom- woman's fashion. And she actually, a lot of her dresses start looking like Cersei's, which kind of is metaphorically showcasing how Sansa is no longer under her mother's influence and is under Cersei's influence. is trying to mirror Cersei to stay alive in this very out-of-context place. Um In season three, her clothing kind of starts branching into something where it's not really... uh, I would say it's closer to Sansa's own style, where it's still reminiscent of king's landing fashion where it's not complete northern fashion but it doesn't look like cersei's clothing anymore it almost has earlier elements of her mother's clothing um and her wedding dress is actually really interesting because some of the patterns on her wedding dress literally showcase like a uh like a lion's cloak on the back which is the one that the lannisters put on her um and it, it's showcasing, especially her wedding dress, is supposed to kind of uh, have elements of it that look like Sansa, but the most colors and the iconography on it is so associated with the Lannisters. It's literally showing that she is being absorbed into the Lannister family, um, metaphorically. And I, I think that that is kind of a really cool thing for DMs to do, is to take things like that, um, to kind of foreshadow things because a lot of times like um when you think in a novel you're gonna have um and I do I don't think all DMs are like novels. This is more for my storyteller DMs out there who I hope there's several of you listening. When you're you're a storyteller DM, you kind of, I feel like it's a tendency to think like a movie or like a novel. And the problem when you're especially stuck thinking like a novel, like I do, is when you're in a novel and you have, like you're in a character's head or you're close to their perspective, you can have paragraphs or pages noticing these details um, and have the character have a conscious narrative thought of oh I feel like I'm getting a, like let's take Sansa for an instance during her wedding it's like a, I feel like I am being forced and overcome and absorbed into the Lannister family and they're forcing me to shed my Stark identity um And you can have a whole paragraph where the character thinks that. When you're a DM, you can't necessarily have, like, the NPC's thoughts read out to the players unless they've got, like, a helm of telepathy. Which, you know, they probably don't. Um, So I kind of like the idea of using... Of using clothing to demonstrate things about characters. Like, you know, what does this person's dress say about them? How they style their hair? Um, because a lot of those things are cultural things. Like, fashion, I like studying because it has cultural significance. Like, for instance, and I, I promise this whole episode's not just going to be about fashion. This will be the last point. Um, historically, uh, during World War II, women's clothing started looking a lot closer to men's fashion, where, like, the the one, it was because people needed to save fabric for the war. So like there was not a lot of extra fabric being used to make fluffy skirts or whatever. So a lot of uh, women's clothing got like that tailored men's fitted suit look, like those tighter pencil skirts, those very sharp jackets. Um, they looked a little bit more like men's fashion. But then in the 1950s, because everyone was really tired and and wanted to go back to sort of this idea of what a stable world looked like after the horrors of World War II, they wanted to kind of sink back into what traditional gender roles had been kind of upset and changed from World War II and establish a sort of new return to normal. So if you look at women's clothing in the 50s, especially, and this isn't for all women's clothing, but for people who are wealthy, because that's normally where the fashion trends come from, you have these really big skirts and these really fitted waist with belts and then these um, cone bras that are supposed to make you look bustier and have like an hourglass shape because they wanted to kind of signify that they're returning to a more calm traditional style. Um, and they wanted more, like, masculine and feminine. And women could be more girly. And it's like, oh, I don't have to worry about, you know, if my frilly skirt gets caught in, like, the uh, machine as I'm building, w- helping build things for the army. No, I can lounge around the house with my cute apron that matches my shoes and dress. Um, you know, like, and that was kind of, like, what the trends were. They were trying – it's a reflection of that. And I feel like clothing is a really fun way to do that as a DM. Um, because you can kind of – You can kind of signify, like, is this person wearing something that is considered risque or a little bit, like, it's fashionable, but, like, some people like it, some people don't like it. Like, for instance, when the bikini got introduced, like, it was such a scandalous piece of clothing that the guy who designed it had to find somebody who was, I believe, a stripper to wear um because no no model would wear it they're like that is too revealing and scandalous and it took bikinis did catch on but there was a time period uh where everyone was like there's the the fashion trenders who were wearing it and were like screw societal rules i am the height of fashion but then there were like the the old crowd who are like oh that's so that's too much so anyway what i'm saying is is like uh Riannon's clothing I was describing where she's dressed probably, she's she's a bit of a hybrid, uh, which is representative of her character because she has embraced a lot of the aspects of fey culture, but she's also still playing a political game of like dressing in a way that is not too out there. There are certain things about her fashion choices that are similar to and giving nods and homages to, like, the changing time, showing she is somebody of change and for change. However, she still dresses in a way that is kind of considered societally acceptable by the old bloods and, like, the old nobility um, because she wants to... Most of her potential people that she would need to impress would fit into that mold and she does not have the power or the allies built up to completely buck the system versus Lady Elaine who I believe I I described their outfits at some earlier point in the campaign I think it was the jousting tournament she dresses like a woman who doesn't have to like she will she she is more comfortable kind of being that avant-garde statement because she is in a more established position of power where uh, Rhiannon is not. So she kind of has to play more of, like, um, play to her audience a little bit more. Uh, so... She was wearing a more f- fancy dress also than what Rowan and Hans and Franz saw her in because she was dressed for dinner and in her own private chambers versus she had just come back from, like, classes or some sort of meeting. And so she had to dress like a woman befitting her station. Anyway, wow, I'm 17 minutes into this. Holy shit, guys. <laughs> Thank you for coming my, to my TED Talk for DMs on how to incorporate historical fashion into your D&D settings. but make it your own. Um, yeah, um, one one small note is obviously they're they're testing the waters a little bit with um, mentioning the fact that they saw her talking to uh, the guy at the tournament, which is Lord Rice, and she completely has a very cold, like a poker face, and then changes the subject. And we'll kind of get back to that later. But anyway, that is Rhiannon's also technique for dealing with things, as so she completely avoids them. <laughs> And maybe I'm projecting uh, myself onto a character there, but I'm guilty of doing that too. Um, Okay, so let's talk about some other stuff before it gets too dark and serious. Um, So Daylin, this was a person that back in episode, I think it was six part two, they were at the weaving contest. Uh, Una had seen this noble do some sort of shady exchange with somebody that she suspected might be tied to um, the person she was looking for from her village, do some sort of money exchange. Like, they got money for giving over a pack of something. Um, and basically, she asked Riannon to keep an eye on him because she couldn't follow him because of guards. So, Rhiannon has been noticing things about him for over, like, the past... I don't know if it's been a month, probably the last several weeks, let's say, since she got tasked with this from Una. Um, and basically, she f- gives his details. Um, and I, I kind of use this as an example to showcase like who this person is in the world, because I wanted to foreshadow maybe his motivation of why he's helping, um, why he might be helping somebody uh, do some nefarious stuff. Because there was definitely, I wanted to give them options to pursue. Like, they could have totally done, like, I I had a couple options for how they unraveled this mystery. One, either they were going to keep going to the aqueducts or the fighting pits to run into these guys. uh, Like, my baddie. Or they were going to go stalk um, this Dalen water kid and kind of see if they can, like, see him talking to anybody and follow him, like, you do a spy game that way. So I wanted to present that as an option, but they didn't really, um, um, <laughs> I wanted to give them multiple options. I don't think it was too relevant. Um, I also did a little bit of foreshadowing with, like, what his, t- uh, Una was wanting to maybe try to, like, seduce him or something, and she had some crazy plan, I could already tell, brewing in her head about, like, charming this kid into, like, telling them, uh, Uh, telling the party about who he was working with and stuff and he he drew he was a bit of an artist and he had drawn sketches of like a beautiful woman with like white hair kind of sounded like they like mermaidy or mysterious you know magical you know oh what what's going on with that uh you know maybe maybe there's foreshadowing there um Maybe there's there's somebody else around uh, the person Megan's looking for. Uh, this feels weird to say because I know by time this goes out, you guys will already know that there's others involved. But it's... <laughs> yeah, for those of you who aren't caught up, we'll just leave it at that. Um. So also, I I love. Um. We took a detour here to just mention Megan and her plan, her notes, because literally Megan's notebook is literally line paper well first of all Megan the way she does her character binder sheets I actually do similar with my DM notes um for my my physical copy and I do this with my D&D characters where like you print off everything and you put it in like a notebook and then you laminate the pages and then you're like flipping through so you have your section where your character sheet I have a section where it's like printed off my abilities for everything and then my spells if they're a spellcaster and then I have like other areas where I keep random notes for things um and and that's what Megan's notebook looks like is she has this whole section where it's like a word or two written or like a sentence and then it's like circled and then it's like a like a if there's like a, a a string linked to something else over there like, you know, like a ha-ha, here's this point that I will follow up and find the answers to. Um, and it, it literally looks like she ha- could potentially have, like, a bunch of pictures up on a wall with, like, yarn and string. That's it, But in, in paper form. That's what it looks like. Um, and I like how she wants It's like she's got this plan. I, I, I really should ask her in hindsight what her plan was because I'm sure it was not... Incredibly detailed, but I, I, if I had to guess, it was probably like a we're gonna stalk this kid and then we're gonna set up a situation where he could save a damsel in distress and like win over his trust and then get him to rat out the people who he's selling stuff to, you know. Um, I. <laughs> Which, honestly, would have been really fun. I'm kind of, in hindsight, I'm, I mean, this is spoilers, but they didn't end up doing that. Uh, but it would have been cool if they did. That would have been really fun to see them try to pull that off. Very high risk, high reward. Um, (laughs) like, I don't know what it would have, what it would have, what would have happened. But it would have been interesting. Uh, in another life. Um, uh, so, alright, I have a little side note here. I think we're gonna skip over it about, like, how... Rihanna's like, oh, yeah, a lot of families... Oh, no, I should go into this. A lot of families like to pretend that they have descent from, like, some sort of, like, mythical hero or, like, god, goddess, like, uh, to to claim legitimacy and this is this is a historic trend like and what i'm not knocking this or not this is this is actually a very smart political strategy to do um but like uh like the imperial family of japan has heirlooms from uh way back in the days of the gods and stuff um That they're descendants from the sun god Amaterasu. Um, The Romans and Greeks did this. Like Julius Caesar, literally said he was descended from Aeneas, who was like one of the founders of Rome before Romulus and Rem like like basically the grandfather of Romulus and Remus I think and the, and he and, and Aeneas was Venus's kid so like that that happened all the time like this is a very smart political strategy if you're noble is to claim you have ancestry from somebody, you know, who is important in the past and there might be reasons why that comes up later and is important spoilers um all right so also uh, we're going to have a little bit of a, a side note conversation here about Sophia, which is Rhiannon's um, body double uh, maid. So Sophia is an NPC that um, actually Steve created. <laughs> Steve was the one who played Songbox with the Kenku bard. Um and he uh had he said that he had wanted this is spoilery stuff, but it's it hasn't really come up in the game yet, and I don't think Steve would mind me sharing it. so this is this is the behind the scenes content you guys pay for. So song had it where he got his name uh from this girl who was another orphan in the orphanage, and she loved stories and also she liked to sing. and she gave him the name song. Because, always called him her songbird which is really fucking cute um and then she got adopted basically or bought um by people because she had a very good uh memory and she was pretty affluent and like she was pretty naturally inclined to learn different languages and stuff like that and was intelligent so they uh you know she got adopted so Steve has it where he eventually wants to find her or reconnect with her as Song Um, and I was like oh I gotta figure out where to put this person in and then I just remember him he's like this is what I pictured she looked like and he showed me this picture um and it it was like of a NPC kind of tavern girl she would be around like 18 is what he was thinking because Song's about 18 and they were, like, the same age. Um, he showed me a picture of what he thought she would look like, and I saw it, and this is like, months and months and months ago. Uh, I, and I was like, holy shit. She is almost exactly what I pictured Rhiannon looking like in my head because Rhiannon was one of those NPCs that I had built out, like, for a very, very long, long time. Um, and it was just it was so obvious i was like what a great way for me to introduce an npc that might have never showed up otherwise and it's just so much easier to work them into the campaign which is rewarding for steve um, because then his character has a chance to interact with her. And it makes sense. Like, he sold her as, like, somebody who would be mm-hmm. smart with languages, um, who could be entertaining. But most importantly, for, like, a noble, like, as a maid, like, they look so similar. Which, I mean, for Rhiannon, who wants to be able to sneak out, that's, of course, what you're looking for. So uh, she obviously has an arrangement with Rhiannon to too. Um, she's her personal maid. Um, and very, they are close in a way where Sophia's in on a lot of her secrets, but it's still a little bit of a strange dynamic because Rihanna is so highborn and, uh, Sophia is not, and she is her employer there is still a little bit of awkwardness there even though they do have a pretty good relationship it's not like rihanna's a shitty boss like if anything rihanna pays her really really well because she wants to have reasons not to have sophia ratter her out um and sophia gets to learn magic from the school uh so it just it just worked out great i i love it i freaking love it the horse must have guided me. It was fate. Uh, it just it's one of those things that is, I'm so happy that Steve came up with this random NPC, like from his character's background that I really hope I get to have an interaction with him and her someday. Yes, yes. All right. So speaking, speaking of nobles um, and all of that and heraldry, all the hints were there. I feel like I telegraphed it so much it's almost cliche, but yes, Rihanna technically has a very complicated relationship with the twins and their culture. Um, I was waiting forever for the secret to be revealed. I thought it might even happen the very first night they met her. Um, And then after that, I thought they would figure it out from the... uh, at the dist- at the festival to the goddess of knowledge, but you know it was it was this close it was this close to being revealed. I think even in that episode, uh, campaign diary, I made a comment on it, and and they didn't go for it. And I'm actually really happy because it gave this more of a uh, chance to come out later. But yeah, like Rhiannon is the daughter of mm, Gabriel Belmont, who is the Duke of the Iron Valley, and kind of intermittently their family is at war with Hans and Franz's tribe um so and literally Rhiannon has always heard them be referred to as like the feral tribes which is very derogatory so uh you can imagine the complication of this uh now the reason why this is like Rhiannon hasn't treated them as such is because I, I Rhiannon is somebody who was educated in very specific ways, uh, and prevents a, and kind of presents a very sanitized version of what her group, her her family, her dad's family, and power was like and their actions. So um, imagine like you grow up and you realize. I mean, okay, I'm gonna. We're gonna get political here, so just 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 strap in for a bit. If you are like most students in the U.S., if you are in the U.S., and if you're not in the U.S., thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, imagine like when you read a history textbook and you look at something like Thanksgiving just happened. Like you have, we have a very sanitized version of what uh, settlers' relationships was like with the Native Americans when we came here, like, to the indigenous people of not only just uh, the U.S., but also in Canada and then Central and South America for, like, the other empires that kind of came over and started colonizing, we have a very sanitized version of what our histories and our actions with were them. And I don't think it was until I was older and I actually started reading things written by, like, indigenous authors um, or not so, like... Biased one way, and and like histories and reading the real facts of what happened about things, and I just was like, holy shit! It's kind of like the the meme online you see of like the 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 two Nazis. One of them's like, "Are we the baddies?" Where uh, you know, like Rhiannon's view of this group of people that do not live in what is considered a civilized manner, like they've been demonized by the culture is at large and she's smart enough to question it but it's still a very uh constantly you know it's still a very complicated thing to kind of realize where it's like well I don't really want to mention this that this is my entire view of your people that I've been taught for quite a while um You know because you don't fit that mold uh so it's just it's a very interesting thing and that's probably why she didn't mention it sooner that and also imagine that you know that you're a noble and you are your father's uh like heir essentially like you're one of his kids like and you run into these people that are from an enemy what is considered like an enemy tribe like an enemy group all right Um, and they don't seem, they seem nice they totally seem nice but do you really want to just bring it up if they haven't really seemed interested or mentioned it? Um, Because if, if you mention it, if they figure it out right then and there, like, you know, it's it could change the relationship. It could, it could make there be hurt feelings. Worst case scenario, it's like, well, now they're gunning to like murder you or use you as a hostage. But it also changes the relationship. Um, And Rhiannon is somebody I feel like as a noble who is very nervous about trusting people. Because if you spend your life constantly being monitored, or waiting to be betrayed, or someone to be let in on a secret, and then they use it against you because you're a powerful figure that can give them influence if they've got blackmail on you. Of course she's going to be cautious. Um, And I think the reason why she would open up to it about uh, with Una and Nora and Rowan is because they are very much outsiders to this whole thing. So, like, they have no financial gain by knowing this. Like, it's not something they can really use over her. Um, And so... (sighs) Yeah, it's it's kind of one of those complicated things, uh, and then. Yeah, so it was one of those conversations that I was really happy that the twins were not in there for. And it was really super funny because technically at this time, Andrew had left to go hang out with his parents. So it was just Josh sitting there. And so Josh was just like sitting there like, oh my God, I can't believe Andrew left and he's missing all of this. I'm getting all the details. And like Josh was like sitting back, like joking, of course, because I don't think this is in Hans and in friends' character, but he was basically like, all right, brother. So we're going to take her and we're going to use her as ransom to get back into the village. Uh, which, you know, would be a smart plan for them, but it's, yeah, it's probably not the most honorable thing to do, but it'd be smart. Um, all right. So, let's... Oh, let's get into some serious shit. Okay. Oh, boy. So, this is this is the content warning spoiler section. We're going to be talking about Rhiannon's relationship with... Uh, And when I say that, I don't mean, like, relationship and, like, romantic. Her interactions with Lord Rice, which I have alluded to being not great. And if you listen to the episode, you know. If you didn't listen to the episode or you skipped over this part, uh, uh, you need to, like – and you don't want to hear this part, I'll put timestamps in. Um, Okay, so yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, rape and sexual assault and all of the complications of that, and why the fuck did I put this in my D&D campaign. I actually didn't play Rihanna in telling the story as emotional as it could have been. Um, And I think that is probably because... I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision, but... There are times when people talk about things that happen to them that are absolutely terrible, and they can be really, um, like, it can be kind of, like, they can be lacking in emotion, and it's almost like your brain, I believe, it's like dis- disassociating what happened. It's almost like you're talking about like something you saw from a movie. It's like your brain putting distance between you and what happened because you feel, like, if you if you if you let it sit too much, it just it brings up too much emotion and it's too painful. So like you kind of put this distance in there. Um, so one other thing I want to make really clear about this for people, because I, I don't really want there to be ambiguity um, in necessarily what she said, because Rihanna kind of phrased it like uh, I, I didn't want it to sound like she was saying it wasn't that bad or I was confused as in like, she didn't just come out and say he assaulted me or he attempted to rape me, even though that is exactly what happened um that is because I feel like when people have had something like this happen to them or even if like uh let's let's not take rape let's take something equally as terrible that happens to a lot of people let's talk about like uh just assault uh like you know your parents beating you or like you know my dad hit me like there's a or my mom hit me or you know my mom screamed she wanted to kill me or whatever like you know there, those there's sometimes like if you've had that happen to you you'll almost soften it when you tell it to other people um because it's just your brain is having a hard time admitting what happened like I remember there's a very Wonderful video online. I believe it was by, uh, I think it was by Kiri Callaghan. Um, I watch her stuff fairly often. She does a lot of Laura Olympus commentary too, which I love. But she's talking about specifically uh, how. Um, there were, uh, there was a specific instance where it took her years to be able to just not say that that was a bad, really bad one night stand, like for her to actually acknowledge the gravity of what happened in there. So I was trying to play Rhiannon, um, truthful to how I feel like somebody who is a survivor of sexual assaults is, or a survivor of even just any sort of trauma like, like that, or, uh, abusive parents, like, There's this tendency when something like that happens to you where you try to, like, act like it wasn't as bad as it was or, like, somehow maybe you were at fault for it. Um, And I wanted to make sure that for the audience, like, uh, you know that's not – that doesn't mean – that's not an accurate statement of what happened. He was 100% at fault for what he tried to do to her. Um and I one thing I was super proud of my players for is you know they they de- they picked up on that. Like they didn't assume that I was trying to say, "Oh, you know, it was one of those things where you never really know or who knows, maybe it's not so bad." Like my players were like, "Fuck this dude. Fuck him. I'm going to like destroy him. God damn, I want to murder this fool." And I was like, good good for you i'm glad that you guys read this correctly and not like uh not in a way where uh Rihanna was at fault for this because she's not and people who are victims of s- sexual assaults are never at fault for it um they are survivors uh and they are not responsible for their uh assailants actions so uh i was really happy that they picked that up um So, one other thing that I kind of want to clear up about this, too, is in this instance specifically, uh, he had kind of been, like, trying to, like, woo Rihanna for, like, a long time and put her in a vulnerable place where she was drunk before making a move. Um, And to me, the reason why he uh, did that is because... He knew that otherwise, like his advances really wouldn't fly as well. So it was purposely malicious on his part, where he was trying to get her into a position where uh, she would feel like indebted to stay with him or question it. It's a very intentionally malicious, predatory thing to do. Um, And I mean, a lot of people who are assaulters do stuff like this. Like they try to, ma- they go after somebody who's drunk or they do a lot of emotional manipulation to make you feel safe with them first and then pull something like that and then act like you're hurting their feelings. Like I thought we were close. Um, and it was more than just, it was more than just like a kiss. He didn't all out, you know, rape her, but it would have been been that had not Lady Seamus arrived. Which also, good job, Sam. I also love Lady Seamus, not just for this, but also I just love her as an NPC. She's bad as hell and, like, cool. And, uh, and we'll talk more about her in a later campaign, diary. agree. Um, but uh, Rihanna kind of is being vague about it because she doesn't fully remember everything and also doesn't want to just kind of admit it is But... Um, the, the truth is is people like lord rice uh they 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 know what they're doing like they they purposely get you into position uh like this um and his, specifically his rationale for doing this is he wanted to put her in a position where she felt pressured into marrying him and by sleeping with him it would be a good way to try to convince her that they should get married um and really that's his whole motivation behind it. It's It wasn't Rihanna was just so beautiful that she just drove him to lust and that you know he just had to have it. Like I've heard that so many times with like assault things where it's like this sort of like oh they're just too resistible and it's like fuck that shit. That's never what it is. It's always a power dynamic and Rice specifically knew wanted to get her in a position where she would feel obligated to marry him because she is in a feudalistic sense a very high marriage match so anything he can do to kind of secure that up would be advantageous to him and he doesn't care about her because he's shit um so all right uh that's that's kind of like my clarifying details about this um and the events so why did i do this um well i mean I don't want to use the excuse because historically this is what has happened. Like, I've heard a lot of people, when they write dark fantasy, like, and put a bunch of extra, like, rape scenes in there, because they're like, oh, this is what would happen, you know? Like, I want it to be realistic. And I didn't do that for this reason. Um, I didn't do it to be some sort of, like, edgy shit, you know, because I don't know how to make my story complicated without adding in, like, a rape. Plot line. I've seen a lot of fantasy books do that, and they're always done really bad. But, like, historically, people did do this. Like, um, noble women were historically more protected than other women, but they still would be, like, put in these situations constantly. Um, like, Elizabeth Tudor, the first Elizabeth, um Because she was considered, like, she was a princess, but she wasn't really in line for the throne, but she was still a very good catch for marriage. Like, her, she was assaulted and groomed by her uh, stepfather, um, like her, not her stepfather, her stepmother's, Catherine Parr's husband, when she was, like, starting around 13 or maybe a little bit earlier, where he would, he was older and he would try to make her, like, feel, like, charmed by him, but then he would do, like, small sexually intimate things to her to try to make her and it would confuse her and like um there's even notes of like her starting to wake up earlier and get dressed before he would come say good morning to her because she was uncomfortable with it and like this is stuff that would happen like all the time to women um because women were viewed as like you know an object and um like for marrying and getting a higher status so and that's 100% what Rice was doing to her so I kind of included it because one it, it is historically authentic and something that like a noble in Rihanna's position would have to deal with because women historically had to deal with shit like this um, but the reason I also um, wanted to uh, do something like this is because a lot of I think this is probably just just a pet peeve of mine. There are so many times where I... There's certain things where when I read a book, um, there's certain things that are just bound to turn me off to a book. And whether rape is in a book or not, it can get a little dicey for me, but it depends on the framing. It depends on the framing of it and what what's going on. And also, mainly, that has to be around, like, was... Is it focused around the person who's the survivor of it? Or is it focused around the fact of, like, this is a, like, it's a woman in a refrigerator trope? Which, if you don't know what that is, that's kind of a term coined from the fact that like in comic books a lot of superheroes girlfriends would just get killed off or like assaulted and then it was like a motivation for them to be sad and you know be better and uh so basically that's a common thing that I've seen in a lot of fantasy books it's like a female character is assaulted and it's almost always fixated on like the male characters going to like uh extract justice on behalf of her where it's it's and it just if I'm just gonna say this it fucking is stupid okay it drives me absolutely insane I have literally read there is a book I was reading recommended by a friend before and they did this shit and I there was a couple things where I'm like I don't like how you're you portray women in the story but you know it It's okay. And then they did that plot line, and I almost threw the book across, like, the room and, like, set it on fire and, like, buried it in the ground because I was so fucking mad at it. And I think to this day... Like, and I I looked, I looked into the rest of the series and it sounds like the author did not handle this any better. I have not physically read it because I couldn't, but even just reading, like, reviews, I was trying to see, like, maybe he, he gets better and made him, realizes that he did this wrong or did this really badly in the first book and fixes it. Nope. Everything I've read about the subsequent books, it's still that stupid shittiness um so I just was like if I ever met this author I probably would have some serious words with them and that is not like I'm I'm not trying to talk a big game like that is one of the things that fucking pisses me off in stories so much because I don't think that it's wrong to have stories of rape or sexual assault in your stories but you have to recognize that it is a very specific type of trauma that is very pervasive and it can be very hurtful and feed into negative stereotypes if it's done wrong so I think that's probably why I did it in this story is because rape is just done so bad in so many books um and it's always from like that either like the female is gonna go exact some sort of horribly violent revenge on the male for it um and you know then it makes it okay like you know the kill I've never watched Kill Bill but I do know the Kill Bill's kind of fit into that sort of storyline that that plot line and and some people who are survivors of sexual assault uh, find great comfort in that and I say there's not really a right or wrong way to like there's not a right or wrong way to like have a reaction to those stories when you've been through that. Um, but I, I do think that a lot of times it's written for like a male audience of like, yeah, we get to go see, you know, we get to be one of the good guys, you know, cause we're not like that guy. So we get to watch this guy die horribly and we get to kill him horribly and feel morally justified because we avenge this woman who got raped. And it's not really about the the person who is the survivor of sexual assault. Um, and the reality is, is most people who are, um, people who are sexually assaulted are never believed like I have many many friends both male and female and some like non-binary who have experienced different levels of sexual assault and just the biggest thing is like they just want to be believed they don't want to like make a big they don't want to go and like murder the person who did it to them. It's really just them trying to come to terms with like what happened to them and not feel like it was their fault. Like that's one of the biggest things that I have seen. Um, so like, this is kind of getting really long. Um, so I, I, I just feel like it's, it's done really, really, uh, you know, bad. And uh, Rhiannon's story, I feel like, even though she's an NPC, um, and the party has the potential to get involved and help her with this, but I think Rhiannon's story will have justice in it because she will she will get it for herself and have peace with um, it and have a happy life, you know, uh, as a survivor. And I think the party is going to offer help to her but it's not really gonna be like a kill bill necessarily revenge style thing Um, I don't know I I I weighed really hard on this because I was like well do you have to include that severity of it um you know you could just have it where he's being a creeper and that's about it and I could have I could have I really I really up until even this episode I, when we played it, when I knew it was going to get set in stone, I kept wavering on, do I make it be that bad? Do I make it be where he actually tried to assault her? Um, And where he was, like, grooming her in the sense of, like, trying to make her emotionally trust him and then put her in a vulnerable situation to take advantage of her. I thought about that. I was like, do I include it? Because, like, it's not really for the character's sake. You know, it's not really for the player's sake to, like, want to help her out more. Like, you know, like, I didn't want a woman infringe her. But it also just felt like I've seen so many shitty stories of how rape is included and assault is included. And I was like, you know, I really want to have a chance to do it where the focus is more on, like, how the survivor feels about it and coming to terms with it and finding her own strength and recognizing it's not her fault and seeking justice in that way and i i don't i don't really have i don't have regrets on it and i actually stand by my decision to do this um but i will admit this is a heavy topic and i probably fucked some things up and there are probably some people that might listen to this story that like this was a big thing for them where they're like well you should never include it in your stories at all and i i respectfully disagree on that, I, but I do think that, like, you're entitled to that, you know, I think you're entitled to, to that opinion and your feelings on it because, like, you know, everyone reacts to different things like this very differently, um, but that's why I tried to put content warnings in and, like, you know, warn people so, like, I didn't accidentally trigger something very negative in them. So, yeah, this is very long, but that is kind of why I did this, um, and I hope that for people who listen to this um whether they are somebody who's been assaulted or not i hope that they feel like i didn't make Rhiannon feel like a woman i didn't fridge her or i didn't put her in that negative betrayal type of like this is just a revenge plot for like the men or like the players to like exact justice um because i really didn't want to do that um but yeah, you guys will have to let me know. I'm sure I can grow on how I portray this in any way. But yeah, hopefully for those who are survivors, you know, um, I want you to know that like just like Rhiannon, it's not your fault and you didn't do anything wrong. It's all on them, and you are strong. And sending all my love. Okay, guys, that was very serious. Um, you know why? Let's uh, let's let's take a step back from the seriousness for a minute and just finish out this campaign diary. Uh for those of you who are rejoining us the the serious shit is over in terms of that so we're gonna kind of go talk about nobles marriages historically oh boy um historically marriage for nobles like they would have engagements that were very very serious until they weren't and what i mean by that is like they were would have like wars and conflicts over like like uh, going back on a promised engagement, but there's historically, I think it was like Henry Tudor, like the eighth specifically. He had like he kept engaging his daughter um, Mary to like just people all the time, like these these political princes, just to get like a deal. And um, nobles would do that all the time because, like, engaging your children was a great way to secure more lands coming in and bringing in money and troops. Um, So, like, there would be, like, spoken agreements of engagements where it's, like, an understanding between the families. Um, Sometimes there would be actual, like, contracts that you would have to get, like, annulled by, like, a like both houses for some reason or like some religious figure, you know. But betroth them. like engagements were pretty serious, but then they would always like if it was politically inconvenient suddenly, like say, Oh yeah, this was a really powerful house, but then they just lost a bunch of troops or, you know, they lost all their money or whatever. It's like, well you don't really want their your kid to marry them still, so you might just yoink her and be engaged to somebody else and come up with a reason why that first engagement wasn't like legit. Um so I think that, um, like, Rhiannon is very, she has been engaged a couple times before. Uh, and, you know, that that is probably because uh, the reason she's not currently engaged, there's reasons for that might come up later. Um, but, yeah, like, so she's probably being smart by not really pledging herself and playing a careful game of, like, not promising to marry anybody. Because she, once she gets married, that's kind of, like, her... Her 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 thing her her things that she can offer somebody goes down if they know like a lot of houses might promise to work with her with the hopes that she's gonna marry one of their kids because then they would have a greater standing I mean she is literally a duke's daughter so that's pretty high standing. Um, They might technically, under the laws of the land, be able to rule in her over her and have more influence over the lands of the Iron Valley she would control. Um, So, like, yeah, she's kind of a big catch in terms of, like, political things. But for her, her she, it's best if she stays single, which is, like, what Lady Elaine is doing. Like, Lady Elaine is not married because she doesn't want to share power. And the second that you usually get married, you have to kind of share power with your spouse, especially if this culture is used to having men in charge. So it's kind of a a tricky predicament where you don't want to be completely cold and you want to tease marriage. Like, Queen Elizabeth did this for a really long time where she would, like, Tease marriage when people are getting a little antsy about, hey, aren't you going to get married and have an heir? It's like, oh, you know, I have, I have suitors. I, mean, I just can't decide. You know, it's, it's kind of a smart strategy to do and hold on to power. And that's totally what Rihanna and, and Lady Elaine are doing, and it works. It's working for them. Uh, yeah. So, anyway, uh, that's kind of. A, let, let's just let's just end off with. Um, going in and uh, filling in Hans and Franz. Both twins should be there, but as I said, Andrew had left to go hang out with his parents, so he missed all that serious shit. And also the big reveal about how she might be, like, from a house that absolutely is working to fight against the Bendaya. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a complicated friendship now. Um, and they, they agreed, the the Una, Nora, and Rowan said they weren't gonna tell the twins that, so, you know, that's kind of a secret for now, but they did mention Lord Rice as being a fucking creep. (laughs) I, I love them scheming and how to try to hurt him, and Josh is like, I'll break his legs, I'll just break his legs. He doesn't even know the severity of it, he's like, I'll just break his legs, because he doesn't respect it, so you know what, Hans and Franz says consent matters, and it does, otherwise he's gonna break your legs. Uh... One thing that is super, super funny about this is uh, that that was a great comment. I love the fact that he said consent matters, but Nora wants to talk to him because she's like, wait a minute, you just said he doesn't respect people's feelings, but you literally didn't respect Una's feelings earlier. That's what this was about. That's why Nora wanted to talk to Hans and Franz because she felt like he wasn't respecting Una's feelings and the, for him, it was a little bit hypocritical for him to just go so hard on like you know uh, rice for not respecting ronan's feelings and then not him not respecting una's feelings even though they are the actions are very different but like he was very patronizing in how he was like una you need to listen to us and i don't care how you feel about this you need to you need to tell we're going to tell you what to do and this is how you should feel about it and he didn't really do that so she's like maybe i should have a talk with him um But it was perfect. It was perfect that she separated a little bit from him because it gave me a chance to have a mysterious stranger approach them Well, Nora recognized them. And I'll go into who this person is next time. Uh, But yeah, so I think that is where we will leave it for this time. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you guys have any feedback or want to comment anything, please leave a comment under this episode on Patreon or you can write a comment Um, to us via social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, If you liked it, please like, share, give us a review on iTunes or something, you know, whatever you listen to us in podcast-wise. It'll help us grow. Uh, Yeah, next time we're going to be talking about episode 19, which is also the first episode where we were recording uh, far away from each other because of COVID, but also we get a guest appearance. Woohoo! It'll be a good one. Uh, Thanks for listening. Have a good one, adventurers mm